Psalm 39. Psalm 39. Now, just a reminder, I give you at the top of your handout a summary of the Psalms, just to kind of remind you what the Psalms are all about. I'll just read it for you. This comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so these are these chapters are actually hymns, songs that are written to be sung in worship among God's people, the Hebrew people. And the themes of these songs basically revolve around the idea that life is glorious sometimes, and sometimes it's really hard. And whether you are on a mountaintop or in a valley, God is worthy of your praise. And whether you're on a mountaintop or in a valley, God is worthy of your trust. As we work through these chapters, we see those themes over and over and over and over and over again. And that is true with Psalm 39. I've titled uh, the teaching time tonight, Live Like Pilgrims. Live Like Pilgrims. What comes to your mind? Let's just talk for a minute. It's not a rhetorical question. I'm looking for answers. Uh, what comes to your mind when you hear the word pilgrim? Anybody? What's that? What's you say? On the move. Okay. Somebody say Mayflower. Somebody say Mayflower. Yeah, the pilgrims. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Right. What else? Passing through. Okay. Anybody else? What's that? Jamestown, yeah, okay. Religious freedom, pilgrims came for religious freedom. All right. I'm hoping someone say John Wayne, you know John Wayne? Pilgrim, yeah, all right. A lot of things come to our mind when we say pilgrim, but I want to think of a really standard definition of pilgrim that doesn't relate to the folks that came over on the Mayflower, all right? This is, a, this is kind of the standard way to think about pilgrims. But before we get into that, I want us to look in Psalm 39. I'm going to read the psalm together, and then we're going to talk about what it means to live like pilgrims. Notice it says there in the small print right before verse 1. And by the way, that small print there right before verse 1 where it says, To the choir master, to Jedithon, the psalm of David, that's inspired text. God inspired David to write that. Okay? As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew Bible, verse 1 starts with that small text. That's verse 1. Okay? This inspired text gives us a lot of information with some of the psalms. So, Psalm 39, to the choir master, to Jeduthun. Anybody here, you got any Jeduthuns in here? Any, any Jeduthuns? Any, anybody, no one's, anybody named their kids Jeduthun? Anybody, anybody familiar with that name? All right, Jeduthun, a Psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. That's a good verse, isn't it? That's a good one to write down and put on your bathroom mirror. I'll guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. You ever been here? My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned and I spoke with my tongue. So I'm here saying, I was musing, thinking about some things that were bothering me. And I tried to keep quiet. I tried not to talk about it. But it just kept boiling up within me. And I had to let off some steam. And out came my words. So what's troubling David here. Well, look what he says in the next verse. My, uh, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. 
Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner. Notice that word, sojourner. I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So let's pray. Father, what a wonderful psalm. There is so much here. And I pray that you would give us grace in this moment. That as we study, as we dig, as we learn, your spirit would work in our midst. That our eyes might be open. That we would grasp the truths of this psalm and be inclined to respond to the truths that we learn. Lord, would you just work in a mighty, mighty way. Lord, change our lives, starting with this, this pastor's life. Would you, would you just work in our hearts? And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we get a little bit of information at the very beginning about the context of this psalm. David wrote it, and he wrote it to give to his worship pastor, Jeduthun. Now, you can read about Jeduthun in 1 Corinthians 9 or 1, Corinthians 16, 1 Chronicles 9 or 1 Chronicles 16. He's listed with Asaph and Heman, who were two other worship leaders. And so Jeduthun was a music minister. And David wrote this specifically for Jeduthun to use in a worship setting so God's people could sing this song to him. Now, that's going to be important as we work our way through the psalm. And this psalm, the, kind of the major theme of this psalm, it reminds us that we are pilgrims. That's why verse 12 is so important. It says in Psalm 39, verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner, a traveler with you. Look what he says next. A guest like all my fathers. And so David is saying this, As I look around at this world... I look at enemies, and I look at injustice, and I say, see bad things happening to good people, and good things happening to bad people, and people coming against me, and, and there are all these things I don't understand. David's saying, I'm reminded this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm a, I'm a pilgrim. I'm a guest here. That's why I'm so uncomfortable. This is not where I belong. That's what David is saying. See, a pilgrim, if you look there in your notes, is a traveler or wanderer. Glenn gave us that definition, a traveler or wanderer, especially in a foreign place. A traveler or a wanderer, especially in a foreign place. So David's saying, I, as I experience, watch this, as I experience the discomfort of life, that discomfort is a constant reminder to me that this is not where I ultimately belong. This world is not my home. And my, um, my intent tonight is that you and I would understand that we need to have the same pilgrim mentality. That we need to live in such a way that we know this world is not our home. We are just passing through. And instead of living for this world, we're living for what's beyond this world. We need to have a pilgrim mentality. Because when you start living like this world's your home, that's when you're going to be disillusioned and broken and perplexed. Because you were never meant to live like this world is your ultimate destination. And so, let me give you some thoughts about 
what happens when we forget this world is not our home? We begin to live like this world is where we belong. Some things begin to happen in our lives. Some things that are, are not positive things. First of all, we forget this world is not our home. We fret. We fret. Got any fretters in here? Anybody ever, any, anybody ever fret? Okay. Anybody ever anxious or worried? All right. We all deal with that in certain times in our life, right? We fret. We worry. We experience anxiety. And, and look what David says in Psalm 39, verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways. I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. And so David here is dealing with a moment in his life, which was most of his life, where he is surrounded by wicked folks that want to harm him. And he's thinking about this, musing about this, fretting about this, and he's saying, it's causing me to worry, and it's boiling up on the inside. I'm trying to muzzle my mouth and, and not speak about the, the injustice I see all around me, but it's starting to make me angry. David's starting to get a little irritated because he sees uh, good things happening to bad people. You ever see something good happen to someone that's evil? You wonder, why am I struggling and I'm trying to serve the Lord? That guy over there is ungodly. He's turned his back to God and he's thriving. I don't get it. Why are the wicked doing so great? And David's kind of scratching his head and it's bothering him. And he's fretting about the circumstances of his life. And when you and I forget that this world is not our home, we begin to worry more than we ought to. That makes sense? We begin to fret. Secondly, when we forget this world is not our home, we complain. Can I get a no me? Look what he says in verse 2. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David's saying, I just had to get it off my chest. I was bothered by the injustice, by the wickedness around me. And I tried to keep it in, tried to kind of mind my own business, but it became like a, a hot fire on the inside, and I had to let off some steam. Uh, growing up, my mother used to use a um, pressure, uh, pressure cooker. Anybody ever use a pressure cooker when you cook? She used to make corned beef in that pressure, and it was delicious. Corned beef and cabbage. And Anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. But she had this pressure cooker, and this pressure cooker had this little valve on the top that would let off steam, right? Yeah, and, and, and that's what it was all about. And, and, and David's saying here, I, I tried to hold it in, I wasn't letting off any steam, but suddenly I just had to explode. And, and all of his angst, all of his worry, all of his complaining comes out. I don't understand why bad things are happening to good people, and good things are happening to bad people, and why enemies are against it. I don't get it! And David is complaining. And when we begin to think this world is our home, when we try to get comfortable here and live like this is permanent, we're going to start complaining when things don't go our way. Right? That's what's happening here. A third thing, when we live like this world is not our home, we focus on the wrong things. When we forget that this world is not our home, we focus on the wrong things. Look what David says in verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Now look at this next phrase. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You know what David's saying there? More on this in a few moments. David's saying, you have folks that, that spend all of their life heaping up wealth, money, possessions, and then they die 
and somebody else gets it. And they don't have any clue who's going to get it. They have no control over that. And so they've lived their life for this world like it's their home. It's been all of their focus on things that are just going to go to somebody else. And when you live like this world is your home, you begin to focus on stuff and getting comfortable and settling here instead of realizing, hey, we are just passing through in a very brief way. This, is never, this, this, this world is never meant to be permanent. And so David is trying to get to the place where he remembers, okay, this world's not my home. I'm a sojourner. I'm a guest here. And the second part of the psalm, he begins to get his focus right. He begins to say things like, my hope is in God. He remembers that he is just passing through. So let me give you three things, four things that pilgrims remember. If you're going to be a pilgrim, if you're going to be a sojourner, a traveler, if you're going to live in a way that this world is not your home, and you know that, there are going to be four key things that you need to remember. Four key things that I need to remember. Number one, you ready? The brevity of life. The brevity of life. Look what David says in verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. Now, a handbreadth was kind of one of the smallest units of measurement in the Hebrew world. A handbreadth is basically four fingers. Not very, not very wide, right? And he's saying, my life is like a handbreadth. It's just, it's just really, really narrow. It's, it, it's, it's not long. It's not wide. There's not much breadth to it. He says, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. So David here compares our lives to a breath. Everybody just... Everybody just breathe out. That's our life. Just a breath. It's just that quick. And of course, this theme is found all the way throughout the Word of God. For example, hold your place, turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. I always read Psalm 90, the end of the year, the beginning of the year. The new year is ushered in. Always a good reminder. This psalm, interestingly enough, is attributed to Moses... And look what Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are gone, soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days. You know what David's saying there, or Moses is saying? He's saying, Lord, teach us, remind us that life is short. So, look what he says next, that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, Moses is saying, when we remember life is short, we'll live a wiser life. If we live like this life is forever and this world is our home, we're going to make some unwise decisions. But if we understand what the Bible says, that life is a, a breath, a hand breath, We'll make decisions that are eternally significant, not temporarily insignificant. Now look over in James with the New Testament book of James. James follows the same theme.
James chapter 4, verse 13. Really powerful passage here. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. And so David calls our life a breath. James calls it a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I always think of cold weather. You walk outside and you breathe and you see your breath just for a moment and then it's just gone. That's our life. Look what he says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so James is saying, you need to remember that tomorrow's not guaranteed. Your life is a vapor. That's the point that he is making. Now, remember, back in Psalm 39, remember, this was a worship song that David wrote, and he gave it to Jeduthun to use in the worship of the Hebrew people. So David wrote a praise song, a Christian song, about how short life is. It would be like me going to Travis and saying, Hey, Travis, i got a song I want you to sing Sunday. And Travis comes out and Travis says, Life is so short, you're going to die. Life is so short, you're going to die. Would that be a blessing to you Sunday? Sing a song like that? This song was used in worship. And it's important that we remember these themes. It's important that we remember the realities that life is not forever. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And David is making that point. So if you look there in your notes, it's important to maintain an eternal perspective so that we will live for what truly matters. It's important to maintain an eternal perspective so that we will live for what truly matters. When I was in seminary, we had a speaker one day, and he used this illustration, and it's always stuck with me. He said, imagine for a moment that there is a line coming right across this room, going right here in front of you. Just imagine a line, and the line has no ending, and it has no beginning. It's a line that runs right through this room, and it goes on forever, and it has no starting point. An infinite line going both directions. Can everybody imagine that? A line going right in front of me here? Can everybody just right, right through here? Everybody imagine that? Now, said, now imagine just for a moment on that line, there's a, there's a dot about the size of a dime. Just a little dot right there on the line. All right? Then the speaker said, the line with no beginning and no ending represents eternity. That little dot represents your life on this earth. Here today, gone tomorrow. And then this preacher in seminary said this. He said, live for the line, not for the dot. Live for the line, not for the dot. The vast majority of your existence is going to be eternity. And so live for what's going to matter in eternity, not just for what's happening on this little tiny dot and handbreadth and vapor that we call life. Amen? If we understand that life is not guaranteed, if we understand that life is short, then we will maintain an eternal perspective and make wise, godly decisions and focus on things that really matter. So much of our life is focused on things that just don't matter. If we maintain an eternal perspective, we'll focus on the right things. 
Here's the second thing pilgrims remember. Pilgrims remember the brevity of life, and pilgrims remember the vanity of wealth. The vanity of wealth. There's a word used in Psalm 39, in verses 5, 11, and in verse 6. Look in verse 5. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing. Notice that word, nothing. Nothing before you. Look in verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing. Notice that word nothing there. See the word nothing? They are in turmoil. Then verse 11. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Now, the word breath and the two words nothing are all the same word in the Hebrew. And it's the Hebrew word hebel. Hebel. And it's the word that's translated in Ecclesiastes as vanity or meaninglessness. Same idea is used here. Probably Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, got a lot of his source material from David. And he picked up on this psalm that David wrote about the vanity and the the emptiness of life. And he expounded on it in what we call the book of Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, the book of Ecclesiastes starts with the word vanity. Hebel. Vanity, vanity. Solomon says, I've tried everything. I've tried, I've tried wine, I've tried women, I've tried work, I've tried wisdom, and none of it satisfies. It's all empty, it's all vain. It's not what life's about. And the point that David is making in Psalm 39 is this. Pursuing wealth is habel. It is vanity. It is vain. It is worthless. Look what he says in verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Life is short. And if you live your life to pursue stuff, when it's all said and done, you will be sorely disappointed because all that stuff is going to be given to somebody else. And you can't control who's going to get it. Right? It's empty. It's vain to use this one brief vapor of a life to accumulate stuff. Why? You're a pilgrim. This world's not your home. You're just passing through, right? So why spend your focus and your time and your effort and your angst on accumulating stuff that will one day just pass away or burn up? Let me say it like this. This is in your notes. It's foolish to pursue comfort in this life. It's foolish to pursue comfort in this life. Why? Because no matter how comfortable you get, there's always going to be things that make you uncomfortable. Life is just hard. And because life is so short. Life is so short. It's foolish to make your pursuit material possessions. Now, Jesus spoke to this in a very powerful way over in Luke chapter 12. So hold your place. Look in Luke chapter 12. Jesus shares a very striking parable about the foolishness of pursuing wealth. And make that the focus of one's life. Luke chapter 12. Look in verse 13. Jesus is teaching and someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. They're fighting over inheritance. By the way, I've been pastoring now long enough where I've seen families torn apart fighting over stuff. I have. 
But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life, look at this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's hard-hitting, isn't it, from Christ? One's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. That's not what life's about. That's what he's saying here. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You've arrived. Verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You spend your whole life accumulating, trying to get comfortable, trying to get wealthy. And then one day, your life that is a vapor comes to an end. And then what? If you've not focused upon the Lord in this life, you're not ready to stand before the Lord, are you? And so Jesus is warning against the vanity of pursuing wealth. Now, of course, the Bible speaks of wisdom and planning and hard work and diligence and those sorts of things. And so in no way is David or, G, or G, David or Jesus undermining those realities. But he's saying this, if your focus, if your preeminent focus is on accumulating stuff, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You know why? This world's not your home. It's not your home. And so, if we're going to be pilgrims, if we're going to understand that we're just passing through, we're just sojourners, we've got to understand the brevity of life, we've got to understand the vanity of wealth. Number three, we've got to realize the source of true hope. Back in Psalm 39, David nails it. It's kind of the turning point in the psalm. Psalm 39, verse 7, as he talks about how brief life is and how... It is vain to accumulate wealth. He says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? David saying, okay, what's my life going to be about? And he says, My hope is in you. This short, brief life that I have is not going to be about stuff, and it's not going to be about wealth. It's going to be about the Lord. That's what he's saying. My hope is in you. Reminding us that the Lord is the source of true hope. God wants us to realize, this is in your notes, God wants us to realize the vanity of worldliness so that we will realize that God is the answer for all of our needs. God wants us to realize the vanity of worldliness so that we will realize that God is the answer for all of our needs. Life is not about us, it's about Him. And pilgrims remember that. Pilgrims remember I was never intended to come to this earth and settle in. I was never intended to come and chase prominence or popularity or achievement or material things. I'm here for the Lord. He made me for Himself. He is the treasure. He is the reward. He is the prize. He is the source. And David gets that. I'm a sojourner. I'm a guest here. I don't belong here. 
And so I'm going to make sure that the focus of my life in this brief time period I have is on the Lord. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. And pilgrims remember these things. Like what James Montgomery Boyce says, talking about him a little bit earlier with Brother Tom. He says, verse 7 means this. David is in effect saying this to the Lord. You are the one who gives meaning to life. Nothing else does because everything else is passing. You alone are eternal and you have made me for lasting fellowship with yourself. I'm restless until I find my rest in you. That's what David is in effect saying when he says, my hope is in you. It's all about you. It's not about me. And I find my satisfaction. I find my joy. I find my purpose in a relationship with you. It reminds me of that that hymn. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Listen to me. Life is short. Don't spend your time chasing a bunch of nothing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look at his face. Find your joy and purpose and meaning and satisfaction in him. And the things of this world that clamor for our attention will just fade away in the light of his glory. And so, David remembers that he's the source of true hope. And pilgrims remember, hey, life is short. We're just passing through. My satisfaction is not to be found in the things of this world. My satisfaction is to be found in the Lord who made me for himself. Which leads to the last thing. You're going to be a pilgrim. You need to remember the brevity of life. And you need to remember the vanity of wealth. You need to remember the source of true hope. And you need to remember the pain of discipline. The psalm takes an unexpected turn here. We think it was going to end on a kind of a high note. But it ends with David talking about God disciplining him for sin. Now, a lot of people believe this is why... This psalm is put by Psalm 38. Lawson preached to you last week about the discipline of the Lord for our sin. And that's why these two psalms are often, uh, or they think, are put together in the canon. Because he deals with it here. And look what he says, starting in verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke, your discipline from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. Talking to the Lord. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Say law. Look in verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Can you imagine singing that as a worship song? Look away from me, Lord, because I've blown it and you're getting my attention and it's not very pleasant. So will you stop disciplining me? That'd be a good praise song. Well, you, would, you wouldn't hear that on Caleb, would you? That's, it's, a, it's a praise song David wrote. And, and what he's doing here is this. He's, he's reminding us, listen, life is short. So don't waste it by living in sin that will be disciplined by your father who loves you too much to let you revel in sin. Because I'm a father, 
I try to keep my kids from doing things that are destructive. Like I tell them, hey, don't go play in the road. It's dangerous. You could get hurt. And if they disobey me and go play in the road, I know that major harm could come, and so I will discipline them to get their attention so they'll stop playing in the road. Amen? And God loves you more than you love your kids or grandkids. In Christ, you are a son or daughter of God, a child of God. And because God is your Father, and because God loves you, He loves you far too much to let you get involved in destructive things without intervening. He'll get your attention so you'll get away from the destruction. And it's not pleasant when He gets your attention, but it's an act of God's love. It's a Father loving His children. Amen? So we should be very glad that God loves us enough to intervene. I tell you, when you're in trouble... It's when God exercises passive wrath and he just takes his hand off and says, I'll just let you do what you want to do. See how that turns out for you. But when you're a child of God and he is your father, he will step into the middle of your foolishness, sometimes in a very painful way, and bring about brokenness to get your attention so you'll walk away or run away from the foolishness. Amen? That's what a father does. And that's what David's saying here. Okay, I I get it. I've blown it. And you've got my attention. Please stop looking at me, God. It hurts. That's what he's saying. And so what do we learn from that? Because remember the context. Life is short. It's a hand breath, right? It's just a breath. It's a vapor. Here's what we learn. We should maximize our fleeting life by dealing with sin seriously. Maximize our fleeting life by dealing with sin seriously. Listen to what Peter says in the New Testament about sojourners about Christians living in this world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, you almost think that Peter was reading Psalm 39 when he wrote this. Listen to what it says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hey, listen, life is short. You're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner. You're a traveler. This is not your home. You're just passing through. So make sure that when people see you living your brief life, they see the Jesus in you. Not a bunch of foolishness, not a bunch of fleshly, worldly living. Because when Christians live like that, people don't see the difference that Jesus makes. Amen? And so, I believe what David's saying here, again in the context of the brevity of life, is maximize your fleeting life by dealing with sin seriously. If God intervenes and disciplines you, stop doing what he's disciplining you for doing. Repent, turn away, run from it. And get back on the right path. Or let me say it like this. Life is short. Don't waste it. We're pilgrims, right? We're just passing through. Our life is a vapor. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. C.T. Studd was a well-known missionary went to different continents with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was from England, and he was a very um, 
well-known, renowned cricket player, very good at cricket, and could have had a career as a professional cricketer. I don't know if that's the right cricket player, cricket person. I don't know how you say that. But he had a successful athletic career in front of him. And God got a hold of his heart, and he walked away from cricket and began to preach the gospel, and began to travel to other nations, other continents to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he heard a phrase one day, and the phrase captured his heart, and so C.T. Studd uh, wrote a poem based upon this phrase. I'm going to read you the poem, and by the time we get through, you'll know what the one phrase was. But here's what C.T. Studd wrote. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Two more stanzas. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasures on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And by now you figured out that was the one phrase that he heard. And the poem ends like this. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. You know what David's saying in Psalm 39, in effect? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When the dust settles on human history and the people of God are gathered around the throne of the Lamb and we look back over this handbreadth of a life that we lived, It'll be crystal clear in that moment what our priorities should have been. Amen? Why not be crystal clear on this side of eternity? Why not prioritize our lives to live for the eternal in the here and now? Because I've been studying Psalm 
39 this week, I used it for family church last night with my kids and my wife. We were sitting around the dining room table and we finished dinner and I read Psalm 39 and we talked about the brevity of life. And I asked my kids a question, what's going to matter in eternity? What's going to be in eternity? And as we talked for a few minutes, they realized souls are going to be in eternity. And what's going to matter is that we're there. Because we've embraced Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the only way to be saved and have a relationship with the Father. And what's going to matter is who we told about Jesus so they could be there too. Right? That's ultimately what's going to matter in eternity. That we know Christ and that during the short life that he gave us, we lived for the glory of Christ, for his renown, for his fame. That's what's going to matter. 